Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Welcome to those of you that are online. Um, if you came in today, uh, you may have got this little handout, and so I'm going to refer to that later, but you can have that um, as we are in James chapter 2. And if you didn't get one of those, there's some in the black boxes at the back, so you don't even have to come up to the front to get them. They're at the back. We are moving into James chapter 2 in our series, and as we mentioned in the introduction, James is a letter that is written uh, from the teachings of James. It's James probably drawing on things that he's taught the church for a while, but it's very early in the young church. It's probably only about a decade or so after the church is scattered from Jerusalem by the persecution that they are facing. And they're in farther-flung cities and farther-flung countries. And the Apostle James, the head of the Church of Jerusalem, has significant authority among the apostles. He's been observing some disturbing trends in the young church as they've been scattered, as they've been persecuted, as they've been facing pressure and stress. And, and cracks are starting to appear in how their faith is being worked out among themselves. He refers to them as brothers. I don't think James questions necessarily on the whole their salvation. He knows they're believers, but they are believers under pressure. And he's seen some disturbing trends as an inspector of their faith about how their faith is being worked out. That's why we're calling this series Faith Renovation or Faith at Work, Faith Working. So, so James writes now to these young Christians to help them you know, see the error, see the flaws, the cracks in the foundation, and start patching some things up in their doctrine and in their practice. So in chapter 2, James has identified the sin of partiality or prejudice. Uh, These young churches, instead of following the pattern of the gospel, have started to slip into the pattern of the world, as we're going to see. Rather than seeing all people in light of the impartial love of God they've begun, even within the church, to kind of stratify people into a class system and presume that the favor that the world shows some people is the favor that they should show people, and conversely, the shame that the world shows some people is the shame that they should show people. And so they have uh, begun to slip into this habit of not treating people impartially. There's starting to be prejudice, and there's starting to be differentiation within the church, and James would have none of that. Now, the example that James is going to use has to do with wealth. Uh, That's what he's going to talk about in chapter 2, but I hope we'll see that his example of wealth is exactly that. It's just an example. There are lots of ways we can show partiality other than with wealth. And so, The greater lesson that James has here is in the fundamental nature of God and the impartiality of God's mercy. And if there's no place for partiality and prejudice to be practiced in the church, then partiality and prejudice has no place in our Christian hearts either. And that's the more important thing. Even though James is talking about the practice of the church, what he really knows is he's talking about what's going on inside people's hearts. And if there's prejudice in the church then there's prejudice in people's hearts, and it has no place in either place. So the gospel of Jesus, then, is an expulsive force against prejudice and partiality, and we have to regularly hold our hearts up to the gospel and see it cleansed of that. 
Now, we might think today that the modern church and the modern Christian is relatively safe from this particular temptation or this particular sin of partiality. Because, I mean, if we think about our culture today, after all, even apart from the church, are we not all trained to accept everybody equally? Surely partiality isn't a problem today. You know, we don't value or honor one kind of person over another. At least we say we don't do that. We know that's the right answer. It's been drilled into us. We all are equal. We all treat each other with equal dignity. It's been drilled into us since kindergarten. But, but what if, as James does, we look at our actions and not just what we say? I mean, we know the party line, even of our culture, but how do we see our culture and ourselves acting despite what we've been taught? I mean, just ask the kids on any playground of any school whether those kids experience any partiality among their peer groups of friends, whether they feel that some friends at school are honored more than other kids are honored, and some are marginalized while others are elevated, even though they walk by the posters in the hallway every day that say, respect everyone, and we're all equal, even a kid in grade six isn't stupid. They know that not everyone is honored equally, and not everyone is treated equal. Or even our adults, as we grow up outside of the schoolyard, what about us? Do we have any sort of subconscious partiality to the people as we see them, the way they're dressed, maybe the tattoos that they have, the kind of job they hold, where they live, maybe how they vote? Do we sort of dishonor some people and honor others based on things that are not really moral distinctions, but simply things that are different than us. So Faith Inspector James is going to do a little rooting around in the basement and under the eaves and just see whether his young churches are more often imitating the world than imitating Christ on the matter of partiality, honor, and mercy. And as I mentioned for this week, I've provided you with a little half-page handout of the text and there's extras, as I said, at the back in the black boxes. And it's a larger text, and I'm, I'm going to be covering some parts of it more generally than the text deserves. And so I've given you this because it breaks out the text in such a way that hopefully as I read it, you can immediately see the structure of the text and the argument of James, which will just help you follow along um, as I work through it. And uh, hopefully that will expedite our process. And then you can take it with you and use it in your life groups this week. But let's just pray before we open up uh, James chapter 2, 1 to 13. Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, It is a mirror, as we learned in detail last week. It is a mirror in which we hold ourselves up to. And uh, not unironically, James itself is the mirror that often gives us the poorest reflection of ourselves and the clearest reflection of you. And so we do hold ourselves up to James as a mirror, and we ask that it would change us, it would transform us, we would not come away from it unchanged. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So James 2, 1 to 13, and what's going to happen here is James is going to give a clear imperative or command. After the command, he's going to provide an example based on what he's actually observed in the church. Then he's going to offer four arguments in support of his command. Then he's going to restate the command more generally for application and give a conclusion drawn from the gospel. And you'll see it when you see it. My brothers, 
Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So here's the command. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And I'm not going to bury the lead or pretend to keep you in suspense here. We already know the gospel of Jesus Christ is that every kind of prejudice and every kind of bias and divisions between men and between men and God are torn down by what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done for all people, for all time, on the cross, to make one people, one family, all accepted by the impartial mercy of God, thereby leveling through the gospel, through the work of Christ, any perceived qualification, any perceived importance, any perceived boast or superiority of one believer or one person over another. It's all leveled by the gospel. We all know that, right? Praise God for that. Paul says things like Colossians 3.11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And he says almost the same way again in Galatians 3.28, and we also see that Peter says to the Greek convert Cornelius, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So we know this. We know that this is the gospel message that all come to the throne of grace equal. But James sees this young church, which is already forgetting this gospel reality. Instead of this church acting like a gospel community, they're acting like a worldly community. In the world, we fully expect people who seem more honorable to receive more honor. We presume that the rich will get the best seats. The famous will get the most attention when they walk in a room. The beautiful will be the most praised. If you're poor, shabby, look a little weird, or don't act or talk the way everyone else does, then you get sort of ignored or shuffled off to the side, marginalized, 
And that's exactly what James saw happening in the church. That the rich and the influential were given favor while the marginal were set to one side. And so he calls it out with this command. It's a simple command. It's an imperative. Command, imperative, same thing. Show no partiality. Do not show partiality as you practice your faith in Jesus. That kind of worldly categorization of people has no place alongside your faith in Jesus Christ, the glorious Lord. So he gives the example, which we've read. The man wearing the gold ring and fine clothing comes in. And he gets the special seat because he's obviously a special person. The shabby person comes in, the poor man, and he's told to stand over there or sit down at my feet. And it's interesting because the context here kind of leads almost to teaching. The, uh, I stand and you sit while the teaching happens. That's actually the opposite of ancient uh, times. Um, if you read like when the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sits and then begins teaching. The teacher sat and everybody else stood, right? Or if, if the teacher was sitting, they would sit at his feet. So there's almost a sense of authority here that's given this rich man as well. You sit here, we'll sit down here. These poor people will sit at your feet and they will listen to you as you teach. Or there's a sense of even going into court. But there's some sort of authority kind of language here. And James says, you are making distinctions like the world. And those distinctions you are making is because you are judging or prejudging. And you have evil thoughts in your judging. Now that seems harsh, doesn't it? Right? Like all we're doing is giving this you know, nice guy who came into our church, we're giving him a good seat. And yet James says, you have evil thoughts when you do this. Now, I don't know what those evil thoughts could, could be entirely. We can sort of suss it out. Several possibilities here. James could mean that as they do this, the church has ulterior motives. That the church wants favor with this wealthy man for his, their own benefit. You know, perhaps for the church's benefit. He's a wealthy man in the, in the neighborhood. He has influence in the local town if he's wealthy. Perhaps he can get some of this pressure of, uh, of scandal off the church. Or, or maybe he could even pay off some debts. More likely, the distinction that they are making itself could be evil. If the truth of the gospel is to break down worldly distinctions in the church, then making worldly distinctions is itself evil. It's evil to make those distinctions. They contradict the gospel and the glorious Lord Jesus. Or thirdly, it could be that they are judging the rich man as being righteous. He's rich, so obviously he's blessed by God. Just the fact that he's rich and well-dressed tells me he's a more righteous person than this shabby poor person. I mean, if he's shabbily dressed and poor, then he must either be cursed by God or he's suffering from the sin in his life. I mean, clearly there's sin in his life that he's suffering from. And so the rich are more righteous and the poor are less righteous, and that would be an evil thought. But whatever it is, James says it is unrighteous, it is evil for you to think with partiality this way. Evil such as that has no place in the gospel. It has no place in Christian practice. So what are his arguments then? He's given the command, he's given an example, and then he makes arguments to support impartiality and condemn partiality. And as I read the text, I see four arguments. The first two arguments are based on the nature of God and the nature of man, and the second two arguments are, are legal, uh, based on the moral law and the judicial law. So he gives these 
arguments. He says, listen, beloved brothers. So James is saying, look, I'm telling you this, church, because I love you. I love you too much to let you get away with what's going on. And you are going to destroy yourselves if this partiality keeps happening. So I tell you, beloved brothers, theologically, let me tell you about the nature of God. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And look at the, look at the juxtaposition of God's choosing to, but you have dishonored. God chooses, you dishonor. So the choice or the election of God is connected with honoring people, and we are dishonoring the people that God has honored. We're called to be impartial, James says, because God is impartial. Has not God chosen without partiality? And it's important that we understand this word chosen. It's the doctrine of election that James is stressing, as Paul does. God's choice is not based on our merit. Our relationship with God is not earned or merited or qualified on our part in any way. It's not a matter of who our parents are, what family we were born into, our class in society, the color of our skin. None of that has any bearing on God's choosing us. God chooses, as James says here, quite apart from our apparent worthiness or lack of worthiness. Deuteronomy 10.7 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. There is nothing you can do that is going to convince God to give you special favor. He shows favor and bestows mercy on who he has mercy. And it has nothing to do with your qualification, whether you're the rich man with the ring and the clothes or whether you are the poor and the marginalized. Romans 2.11 says, God shows no partiality. There's nothing that will get you special attention from God, as I mentioned. Rich, poor, healthy, sick, educated, beautiful, not so beautiful. God's impartial in his choosing who receives his mercy. In fact, not even all poor people receive it equally. The poor who receive God's mercy are distinguished, James says, by being those who love him. So God may have a special place in his heart for the marginalized, but the marginalized receive the mercy of God as they love him. So Paul elaborates on James's argument in 1 Corinthians. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what, if, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. That's heartwarming, isn't it? Paul's being very clear. You are foolish. You are unwise, you are ignoble, and that's why God chose you. I mean, I know it's true of me. Looking out there, it's true of most of you as well. Um, Bible says it's true, okay? But that's the reality. God is not partial. God shows no partiality in who he chooses. And yet, James says, despite the fact that God chooses from all people, you, church, are selectively dishonoring some of them. 
So there's a basic theological argument here that says God is impartial, impartial in honoring the poor with his mercy, and so we should be impartial in our honoring of the poor or the weak or the unwise or the ignoble or the marginalized in any sense with our mercy by treating them the same as everyone else. And James's second argument has to do with the nature of man. It's the first one's a theological argument. The next one is an anthropological argument. If you want to have like nice rhyming sermon notes, like preachers usually want, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, James here uses the word rich, plusios, as a means of identifying a particular segment of society that the church would easily recognize. Just as James says, these specific poor people who love God, those are the poor people I'm talking about that God shows mercy on, those, those ones that fear and love God, he now says there's a specific kind of rich person I'm talking about now. These kinds of rich people who oppress you and drag you into court, and furthermore, these rich people that blaspheme God. The nature of these rich people is sinful and blasphemous. This is not necessarily the man with a gold ring and fine clothes who enters into church. Notice that James doesn't use the word rich man. He says it's a man with a gold ring and fine clothes. And you'll talk about that more in your life groups. But James is actually very careful about using the word rich, plusios, in terms of identifying the ungodly rich. He never uses the word rich when he's talking about people who are in the church who may also have wealth. They're a different kind of person. But the rich, the Plusios people, are pagans. They are oppressive, they drag Christians into court, and they blaspheme God. James's argument here is essentially, even if we set aside the impartial and merciful nature of God as our motive, why on earth are you showing special honor to the kinds of people who torment and oppress you? Notice here, this might be subtle, but James says, who oppress you, who drag you into court. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the church. Who are the rich dragging into court? Poor people. Who is the church? You are poor. You poor church people. Most of the church is poor. Most of the church is in the lower class of society. And so he's saying, why? These people drag you into court, and they oppress you. So why are you honoring them and neglecting your own brothers and sisters in order to honor the ones who oppress you? Again, this is the anthropological argument. This has to do with just the nature of man. It doesn't even make sense. And I'll just interject here a little story from Jesus, because you might think if you're sitting here today that if you're on the poor or the weak or the marginalized equation today, and you're thinking, yeah, that's right, I do feel marginalized, and I do don't get treated as well as everybody else, you know, and all those, you know, rich people compared to me need to listen to this sermon, I'll just give you a little story from Jesus, because you need to be reminded of this. This is not a sermon just for a certain kind of people, but for all people, You know the story that Jesus told in Matthew 18 of the poor servant who owed the king millions of dollars. And he goes to the king and he begs for mercy. He begs to be shown mercy and forgiven by the king. And the king, being merciful, like God, forgives the poor servant and says, I've wiped away all your debt. And then that poor servant goes out the very same day and turns on his neighbor who owes him about $100 and he demands that his neighbor pay. 
Well, when the king got word of that, he went back to the servant and threw him in prison for his lack of mercy on his neighbor. Sometimes it's the poor who are the most obsessed with money. The marginalized have their own set of prejudices and partialities. And again, this is subtle, but realize this is exactly what James is saying, because you, poor church, are the ones who are guilty of showing honor to the rich man. And I just want to clarify a point real quick here, because the example keeps going after the rich. But understand that the wealthy man who came into the church wearing the gold ring and the fine clothes is not the one that James is rebuking. Who is James rebuking in this text? He's rebuking the church for showing partiality. He's not blaming the man for having a seat of honor. He's not blaming the man for having a gold ring or fine clothes. He's blaming the church, the poor church, for showing partiality. It's the church that's evil, not the man with the ring and the robes. In this text, don't worry, we'll get to that text. (laughs) But in this text, keep in mind, the rebuke is for the church. The sin is partiality. The sin is not wealth. The sin is partiality. And as Jesus' story, and as James more subtly is saying here, the poor can be as prejudiced and impartial as you think the rich are. The rich have nothing on prejudice over the poor in either James's or Jesus' eyes. Now James switches tactics slightly to make two legal arguments. He makes an argument first from the moral law. Well, that was the little text from Matthew. He makes, a te- he makes an argument first from the moral law. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. It's an understatement. You're actually doing really well if you do that honestly and sincerely. But if you show partiality, here's the condemnation, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. So, of course, you remember when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment of the law was, Jesus replied in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So James is referring to the second part of that great commandment, or the royal law. In what sense is it royal? It's royal in the sense that it is the law of the kingdom. But I think perhaps what James is saying here, it's royal in the sense that this one law is the law that governs all other laws. Jesus said in his conclusion of that statement that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the royal law because it governs every other law. Every other law depends on it. Every other law is fulfilled by it. So these commands govern all other commands in our relationship with God and in our relationship with others. Love God, love others, everything depends on that. Paul says in Romans 13, 11, love is the fulfilling of the law, the law of love. So you see, James says, if you make a habit of showing partiality, of judging others by their position in society, or by their ethnicity, or by their education, or how they look, or the neighborhood they live in, or any other condition like that, then you are biased and prejudiced against them. You are breaking the royal law. You are committing sin. You're dishonoring them. Even though God honors people just like them, you are dishonoring them. You are not loving them. The moral law of Christ convicts that you have not loved your neighbor as yourself, 
that you do actually treat them less kindly than yourself, that you treat them less kindly even than the people who you just feel are more like you. You know, you just treat people that you happen to like a little bit better, better than they do. That is not loving. And then he comes down with another legal. He doubles down on the judicial law. And by that I mean by the judicial law, I mean not the moral law, but the functional way in which the law technically works against us according to Scripture, that we will be judged by the law, judged like in a court judicially. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You see, this is the technical part. James is getting judicial here. You know, he's up for the prosecution before the judge. You know, if you've broken one part of the law... Your Honor, you know, he's failed all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So this is the way it goes, Your Honor. You have to convict. (laughs) Because you can't just keep one part of the law and assume that makes you a law keeper. You cannot let this person go. It's the other way around it. If you break even one law, then you're guilty as a lawbreaker. You know, the mafia hitman who's, who's very faithful to his wife is, is no better off than the adulterer who hasn't killed anyone. You know, most of us, I think, are on the second side of that, at least I hope. If we have some mafia hitman here, come up for prayer afterwards. But, 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 but most, of our, most of us are on the second side of that, part, that, that example that I gave, right? Like, most of us think, well, at least I'm not a murderer, you know, like... Yeah, maybe I'm prejudiced against some people. Like, you know, maybe new Democrats really rub me the wrong way. But at least I don't kill anybody. You know, maybe I'm only friendly to the people that are in sort of my social class and I, and I kind of cross the street to avoid other kinds of people. But at least I'm not a murderer. And James says it doesn't matter that you're not a murderer. You're breaking the law. The law of love. The law of liberty. When you show partiality in your heart and in your actions towards people who God loves equally, if it was possible, maybe even more than you. And God loves us all equally. But you don't know what's in their heart. You don't know the mercy and the grace of God that is upon those people. And yet we judge subconsciously, unconsciously, consciously, we judge the people that we associate with. And James says that has no place in the church. Having made his four arguments, James restates the original command more generally and more personally as it applies now to us. How does it affect us if we do this? He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So James says, you are going to end up in court. You are going to be judged, not judged in an evil way, the way you judge. You judge with evil intent. That's what he said in the opening paragraph. You're not going to be judged in an evil way as you've been judging others, but you are going to be judged by the law of liberty. And James describes the law here as he did a few paragraphs earlier in chapter 1. Again, the law, what kind of law? It is a law of liberty. And boy, that is good news. It is really good news that the law is a law of freedom. So here's the imperative again, the command. In your interactions with the poor or the rich, with the marginalized or the favored, 
As you interact with everyone you encounter, so speak and so act in a way that is aware of the judgment to come. Just as with the greedy servant who went after his neighbor, James says God's treatment of us in judgment will be reflected in our treatment of others. The king treated that servant the way the servant treated his neighbor. And James says that's exactly how the law of liberty works. That's how it's going to go. The way you treat others is going to reflect on how you will be treated under the law. And if you want a really, really clear example of this in judgment, then just go read the last part of Matthew 25. You remember when Jesus says, yeah, when, when you gave a drink to the least and when you gave food to the hungry, when you clothed the naked, when you visited the, the ones in prison, that's what I'm judging you by because you were visiting me and you were clothing me. You were giving me food. So don't think what you do doesn't matter. Jesus says to the least of these, it's important how you act. And that's why James is getting real serious here about the judicial law. Are we honoring the marginalized? Are we hospitable to those that are different than ourselves? Is there a place of honor in our lives for the overlooked? Or do we reserve the place of honor in our lives for the favorable and our favorite people? If we expect God to honor us with his mercy and to show favor in his judgment on us who are dishonorable, then are we showing mercy and favor on those who we would consider dishonorable? James concludes with the power of the gospel, mercy over judgment. It's like James is our legal counsel here. He's giving us some pre-trial advice. He says, look, you are going to go to judgment. You're going to go to court, and the judge is going to be there, and you're going to be judged under this law of liberty. So now, before we go into the courtroom, let me give you some legal counsel. There is freedom available to you. There is mercy under this law. And when you are judged under the law of liberty, this is how you are going to get triumph in that courtroom. Mercy is how you will be successful. Mercy is how you're going to win a victorious judgment. You want victory in that courtroom under the law of liberty? Then be merciful, because as you are merciful, you triumph. He says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, speak and act without partiality. Show the same mercy or honor to all. Because if you enter the courtroom under the law of liberty without having any evidence of being merciful in your life, then you will be judged without mercy. If you have lived a life of impartial mercy, then you will be judged with mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is how you will have victory in the court of the law of liberty. Mercy is the opposite of partiality. Mercy fulfills the royal law. Mercy is love in action. Mercy sets us free under the law of liberty. What is it in our culture, in our church, that divides us the way wealth was dividing this very, very early Jewish church? Wealth was creating a division, and it was understandable because in the ancient Middle East, there was the very wealthy, and there was the very poor, and there was very little middle class. And everybody, and I mean that without exception, everybody in this room today would be considered wealthy by anybody who was considered poor in the Middle East in ancient days. 
Like everybody here is considered wealthy. Maybe it's not wealth that's dividing us. I don't think it is all that much. But what is it that's dividing us? What is it? Who is it? What kinds of people do we show favor to as a church, as Christians as a whole, and even individually? I don't know your heart. You show favor to certain kinds of people who think like you, act like you, look like you, dress like you, talk like you. And I do the same. But the law of liberty and the mercy of God have come along and said, that needs to stay outside the church. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news, right? That, that's the old system. That's the old system of religion that you measure up, that some people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the favored ones, that you could measure up somehow. You could earn credit in the eyes of God, and God would look out and he would say, oh, look at all these favorable ones. They are the ones that will receive the reward. And God says, no, that's man-made religion. That's evil thinking. My grace is equal to all. Come to me no matter who you are, and my mercy is for you. My son died on the cross for every person, every race, every class, every educated, every beauty or ugly or lame or whole or in prison or free, Jesus died for all equally. And anything that smacks of partiality or classism or racism or any other ism is antithetical to the gospel. It is an evil in the sight of God. And so James is simply saying to these people, any kind of worldly partiality, any kind of worldly favoritism or worldly shame that exists out there, leave it at the door. When you come in here and you're sitting here, we're all children of God. And that's it. That's our only identity. Remember the very first message that we taught here on this series? What was, what was verse 1? James, a servant of God. That's it. We're all just servants of God. No special servants. Nobody gets special favor. And so we have to ask ourselves, where does our partiality creep into our heart? What kinds of people are we partial to? What kinds of people do we kind of avoid? Who are we excited to see at church? And who do we kind of go, why are they here when we walk in? Well, James doesn't mince words. Again, I'm not sure why this is everybody's favorite book, but James says, you think like that, you're thinking evil thoughts. They are not good thoughts. The church was established to be something supernaturally different than the world. When we come through the doors of the church, the differences of the world are laid aside. Both the favor of the world and the shame of the world are equally cast aside. If you have some kind of special favor out there, forget about it in here. I'm not going to treat you any different. At the same time, if you have some kind of special shame out there, forget about it. We're not going to treat you any different. Whatever your favor is or whatever your shame is, we love you. God loves you. You come as equals to the throne of grace. In the church, all people come equally to the mercy of God, and all are brothers and sisters. Let's, as a church, leave our differences at the door, whether it's favor or shame, and in so doing, fulfill the law of liberty and keep ourselves safe from its judgment. Because Jesus will ask, how did you treat the least among you? That's how you treated me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for James. 
Thank you that he doesn't pull any punches when he writes these lessons to the early church. We thank you that it's as relevant today, even as I speak these words, they resonate with the exact same relevance 1,950 years later. It's been almost 2,000 years, and we still need these lessons, not just as a church, but as a human race. And so, Father, I do pray, as Steve prayed, that those that we engage with with the community would, would find that that connection point, whether it's an after-school program or a camp or a, a concert or a comedy show or a trunk or treat or whatever it is, that there would be some connection point or a friend here, and they would cross that threshold, and they would hear the incredible good news of the law of liberty, that we are set free by mercy, that we are set free by the mercy of God towards us, and we are set free as we are merciful towards others. We need this whole community, this whole country to hear those words. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.